letter that we're reading tonight, this letter written to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, um, is a corrective letter. Paul is writing it not just to check in and see how things are going, not to lay out some sort of basic doctrinal understanding or to update them on his journeys. He's writing it specifically because there's things that have gone sideways that need to be addressed. And he's been doing that in kind of a big and general way in chapters 1 through 4. And this is the first time when he really gets down to brass tacks. And he basically says, issue number one that we need to talk about. And it's a, um, a particular instance in the church. And you'll find as we read it that the, the instance itself is shocking. Uh, that the, um, the instructions that he gives the church to follow through with in light of this is shocking. Um, it's... It's serious business. And it's because it deals with sin. And there's a tendency, it's a human tendency, I think we may manifest it more than other cultures, but it's true of all, um, all humanity in all times to not recognize how serious sin is. Just take, for example, how strong Jesus' language sounds when he says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out because it'd be better to live, you know, blinded with one eye down. It'd be better to live that way than to be cast into hell. And it's clear that he's using hyperbole. But I want to remind you tonight that hyperbole doesn't mean it means less than he says. Hyperbole, the whole point is how serious it is. He's trying to wake us up and draw attention to the reality, the danger, if you will, of what sin does. But like I said, our tendency is to, um, to downplay these things and not recognize this. And so my encouragement to you tonight is to reserve your emotional response to this passage. Uh, in fact, especially because this is dealing with church discipline. And this passage, like many others in scriptures, has been plenty abused throughout church history. We'll hit a verse tonight that the uh, Spanish Inquisition loved because it in their eyes, gave them the right to torture because, yeah, it may be doing things to their physical body, but the goal is to save their spirits. And so they were big on this passage. But if you pay attention to the context, if you listen to what the rest of the New Testament teaches on these things, and especially if you hear the heart of Paul the Apostle as he addresses these things, it's not what it first seems. Um, Like I said, it, it can look a little bit intense Uh, but it is actually very, very good news. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read. Um, We'll be covering the first eight verses of chapter five. Let's read them together and then we'll pray. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would teach us tonight, that you would help us to see reality, because that's effectively what church discipline is. It's a reality check. So I pray that you would help us to manifest not only the appropriate unleavenedness of the church as is required here, but also, um, also the tremendous love and heart for one another that is manifested here as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. The section lays out very simply. Uh, It'd be relatively easy to outline. It begins with the problem, then Paul presents the solution, and then he finishes in verses 6, 7, and 8 with the reason given, the the theological foundation, okay? 
And so we're just going to walk through it in that pattern, but once again, you've got to kind of hold out for the end. Uh, it's, it's like the twist at the end of an M. Night Shyamalan movie, okay? It doesn't matter how bad the movie's been so far. That actually might make the whole thing worth it, okay? So just, just hold on, but notice how, how um, surprising this begins, He's speaking to a church here that he planted, and not only that, but a church that prides themselves on being one of the best churches, one of the great churches, full of the right type of people. In fact, he's just spent chapters trying to realign their understanding and deal with their arrogance as Christians, and he then tells us here that he's heard, being hundreds of miles away from this church, it's reported, he's actually hearing that what? It says... Uh, that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, the word here he uses for sexual immorality, pornea, had become kind of a junk door, drawer term for the Jews. Any sexual sin, anything that fell outside of the confines of God's law for sexuality, it received this same label, sexual immorality. And so this was true not only of um, premarital sex, but extramarital sex and adultery. It was true of incest and bestiality. It was true of homosexual behavior. It's, it's just a broad and a general term. And he says, that's what I'm hearing about you. And then when he gives us the specific case that he's referring to, notice what he says. He says, and that of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. Now, Rome and Corinth, being a part of the Roman Empire, had a relatively free standard of sexuality. It was generally reported by the philosophers that it was uh, that for men, because they were that type of a culture, this was, this was a double standard, but for men, there were concubines, there were mistresses, and there were wives, and they were all necessary. Wives for the raising of children, mistresses for love, and concubines to take care of the physical needs of the body. This was just the expected uh, ethic of their day. It was a relatively sexually loose place. But here he says that what's going on in the church of Corinth is not even something that you've learned from culture. It's not something you've inherited by seeing it out there. Even the culture of Corinth would have found this particular behavior aberrant. And what does it say it is? It says, it says, for a man has his father's wife. Now notice here, um, Paul's reporting of this is not graphic. He, he says this very plainly and simply, but what does it mean? He has his father's wife. What it means is that there's a man in an adulterous relationship with his stepmom. Okay? And when it says has here, the implication is not that this has happened, but it's happening. Okay, they're living together. They're living in the midst of this relationship. Now, we can't tell, looking at the passage, if, um, if this woman's husband is dead, if they've divorced and, uh, and this relationship is happening after that. We can't even tell if this is a new marriage, if these two were married or not. None of that is on the table, but Paul is thinking particularly of Leviticus 18, uh, where the sexual ethic for Israel is laid out, and it's, it finds a problem in the ancestral relationship beyond and aside all those other things. Okay? The idea that, in the words of Leviticus, you would uncover your father's wife uh, was completely out of bounds, according to Leviticus 18. Now, we have reason to be- believe that this is actually an adulterous relationship and that his father is still alive. And the reason I say this is because 1 Corinthians is part of two letters. That's where the first comes from. 2 Corinthians is a follow-up letter, and Paul addresses these issues again from the other side. They actually do take his advice, remove this man from the church, and they're so worried about getting it wrong again that even though he's come back, set aside the relationship, and is penitent, they don't want to let him back in because they, they don't know if it's the right thing to do. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. You need to reaffirm your love for him. But later in the, in the letter, in chapter 7, he says that I'm glad I wrote this letter, even though it brought some to tears, because it brought the sinner to consequence and the sinned against comfort. And so if this is the instance he's talking about, the sinned against, of course, would be this man's father. Okay? So, like I said, this reality here, I, and, I mean, just to give you an example, even in our day and age, even in our culture, is relatively unheard of. Um, I read Dan Savage. He's the sex 
columnist for The Stranger. He's one of the great voices of the new American sexual ethic, and I read him just to understand where our culture is coming from, and he would not, he would not give a thumbs up to a relationship like this, okay? And that's what he says in his day, too. He's like, here you are, the church, and this is happening in your midst, and all of Corinth is looking sideways going, really? Did you hear about the guy from the church down the street? Right? That's the reality of this situation, okay? Now, notice what it says uh, here in verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And so he says, your reaction to this has been one of pride. Now, there's a couple of possibilities here. It's possible that when he says they're arrogant, they're actually arrogant about the fact of this guy being a part of their church. So maybe it's that they're so tolerant and loving that they'll tolerate even a relationship like this on behalf of love, you know, as, as an applause of, of love. Or maybe um, the idea here is that, um, that they've... Okay, let's see, how can I put this? We know there was a tendency in some of the early church uh, populations, and Corinth is probably one of these, to see the Christian life as basically an ending of everything that came before. And so you've now transcended to a new level of humanity, and effectively the rules don't apply. You're already forgiven, so sin doesn't really mean anything. Your spirit is what really matters, so it doesn't really matter how you use your body. Uh, we'll see this come up later in the letter. And so maybe the idea that they're applauding here is this um, coming into your own in humanity that you've transcended traditional morals, effectively. But he doesn't actually tell us that. And it's much more likely, I think, that the arrogance he's referring to is not arrogance in applauding the sin, but arrogance in feeling that it doesn't need to be dealt with. Okay? And so I would say here, this isn't, the issue isn't that they're proud of this, but they're proud in spite of this. That they're patting themselves on the back, feeling puffed up, and maybe even they're justifying this reality going, look, I know maybe that's something that should be dealt with, but have you seen you know, our, our bustling ministry and how many people are coming through the doors? Have you watched us speak in tongues, which is a big issue for the church in Corinth, and seen how present the Spirit of God is in working miracles in our church? It, it, it may be possible that they just don't see this as worth dealing with. And I'll add one other possibility because we know that the Corinthian church was under the influence of the culture specifically in terms of, uh, of wealth and success. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've seen how influential this was. So maybe they haven't dealt with this because this guy is an upper-class citizen. Maybe they haven't dealt with it because he's in a position of influence, power. Maybe he's one of the great tithers, one of the great benefactors of the church. And so they're like, well, it should be dealt with, but we're all lower class in comparison. We don't have any place to, whatever it is, Paul doesn't mention it. And that should point out to us that it doesn't matter. Okay? The way he sees this is so black and white. It doesn't matter what hypothetical situation has made this the case. It's not an okay situation. And so he says, you are arrogant, okay? And the word here uh, means to be puffed up. Specifically, it means to be so full of hot air that you look big, but there's not really anything there. The, the word implies you're not what you seem, okay? And so he's, he's not saying they have anything to be proud of, just the opposite, that despite of this, you're acting like you're the big man on campus. You're acting all holier than thou in comparison to Paul himself, if you read the first three chapters, and yet this reality co coexists. But if you miss what else he says in this sentence, it will, it will skew your entire understanding of this concept called church discipline. What does he say they should do instead? He says, and you are arrogant when you should be mourning. That is so important. Because the reality is there's a form of so-called church discipline that is just another manifestation of pride. Right? That basically says, I cannot believe you're the type of person who does those types of things. We no longer want anything to do with you. Right? Or you've basically fallen out of sorts on the level with the rest of us, so you're no longer welcome. Or even, we can't be seen with a person like you. Right? All of those things can interfere with and manifest in a church and be labeled church discipline. But he says that true church discipline comes from a place of mourning. And the word here he uses for mourning is an important one. Um, in the Greek New Testament, the language that the New Testament is written in, there's about four words that are translated in this word group for mourning. The one he uses here is not the base level mourning word, it's the intense one. 
okay? It's, it's the one that's used of mourning at a funeral. It's, it specifically means not just a feeling on the inside, but one that is actually, without you being in control, manifesting on the outside. It's an overwhelming sense of grief, okay? And he says, not just that that should be the reaction of the man who's living this life, but the reaction of the church to this man's sin. Why is that the case? Okay. Now, we'll unpack this as we go along, but if I, can, if I can preview the ending for you, it's because in this man's decision, he is losing out. Okay? They're mourning him like a dead man because that's what's happening in his life. It's death. You see, sin leads to death. That's the way the Bible understands it. And a lot of times, if we start from a place of, of seeing God as a lawgiver and sin as not keeping that law, what we think is, is too arbitrary. It's God coming up with a list of rules because he likes to enforce them or something like that. But the way the Bible understands sin is, to some degree, not just rooted in a holy and just God who, who decrees what is right and wrong, but also in the fact that God created us with purposes and intentions in mind and the laws that he gives align with and follow suit with those purposes and intentions. And so in in one sense, if it's helpful to you, think of the manual that comes with your car, okay? That's going to have recommended maintenance in it. And you are completely free to change your oil or not to change your oil. But the reason that's in there is because that's what your car is need and it was built with an oil change in mind, okay? Now, this gets to a major false way of seeing sin and obedience, okay? There's a tendency in us, it's a, it's a self-centered human perspective that basically sees God keeping us from good things. And so what we say then is, is sin is freedom. And so what God is doing is hedging us in. He's restricting us. He's stopping us from doing things. And those things may be good or bad, but but real freedom is being able to determine my own destiny. And I'll remind you that even if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, that's part of the story, right? Is this really the best thing for you that God's told you not to eat of this tree? Does he really have your good intention in mind? Wouldn't it be better if you became like God and made your own decisions? Okay, so we're dealing with very much the heart of the matter. But this is why Jesus, when he talks about sin, calls it slavery not freedom. And many of us have experienced this. You have behaviors that you identify as being sinful, as being bad and harmful that you can't seem to stop. In fact, there's this vicious cycle of sin. We see it most profoundly in addiction, but it's really a part of all sinful behavior that actually gets harder and harder and stronger and stronger and worse and worse. And you may have made a choice at the beginning, but you're not in control now. That's why Jesus says, whoever comes to the Son, whoever the Son sets free will be truly free. And what is he talking about? Forgiven and therefore you can live your life like hell? No. Forgiven and now you can actually obey. That's the way that Jesus sees it. And so obedience is freedom and sin is slavery. Let me go back to the car metaphor. You are completely free not to change your oil in your car, but you won't always be free to drive that car if you don't do so right? Look at dieting. You're completely free to eat whatever you want and how much of what you want, but you won't necessarily maintain the freedom to go out your front door, right? Or to be able to button your pants or to live a healthy and fulfilled life. Freedom is not so much about if you can do everything, but if you're free to do the things you most need to do for your best interest, for your true purpose, okay? So this is what sin does. Sin leads to death. And not just in some form of final consequence, but sin kills in the moment. Sin breaks down your relationship with God, sure, but it also breaks down your relationship with other people. It comes between them. Sin is inherently antisocial. And we can clearly see that in this case, right? Whatever this man wants to say about the love in his heart he feels for this woman, he cannot say he's doing a good job as being a good son and loving his father. Right? And there's another one that we don't always think about, but sin also separates you from yourself. It alienates yourself. It skews something in the body so that everything goes wrong, and what you find is a constant hunger and no satisfaction. 
What you find is wanting to be one thing and identifying that, but you're suddenly completely a different thing. You become what you hate. All of these realities are built into this, and that's what sin does. Sin always leads to death. It destroys. It's corruptive. That's why Paul says in the book of Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. What he's saying here is, look, if you, if you plant corn, you're going to grow corn. So don't expect peaches. And he's talking about sin. He says, if you sow to the flesh corruption, you will reap death. But if you sow in the spirit, you will reap life. And so you can't interfere with these consequences or avoid it. It's built into the process. And so what this man is doing by choosing this relationship is investing in death. He's pursuing his own destruction and the destruction of other people around him. And more than that, by choosing this woman against the law of God, he's saying, I need something more than God. I need something beyond what God has made available to me, beyond what God is willing to do for me. I need something more than God himself for satisfaction. What God has given me in life and said is for me to do is not enough. I need something else. And in doing so, in doing so, he's choosing not a greater but a bad, but a lesser. Do you understand that? What we're seeing here, we see play out kind of symbolically in the relationship of Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother. And unlike our culture, that comes with a particular right that, it, that means basically being the up-and-coming patriarch, you will be the priest of the next family. And that comes with the blessing. It comes with the birthright. It comes with two-thirds of the inheritance. It's all set in stone with the birth order. And one day Esau's out hunting, and he comes back, and he's hungry, and his brother is cooking, and his brother says, please, give me a bowl of stew. And his... his His brother goes, okay, well, why don't you give me the birthright? Why don't you give me everything that's not right in front of you right now, everything that's promised you, everything that is identified with you as the older brother, and I'll feed you. And he sells his birthright for a pot of stew. That's what's happening here. Everything that God wants to do for this man, everything he has available, everything available in Jesus Christ himself, he's pushing aside for a for a temporary and passing and not satisfying reality. That's what's really going on here. And so he says the appropriate thing then is to mourn. We hate sin as Christians not because we're sinless and not because we're self-righteous and better than other people, but because we recognize the full reality of sin and that it is so terrible that the only way God himself could deal with it and not destroy us was to lay it upon his own son and punish him instead. Sin is serious business. And what you, what you can say very easily about the church in Corinth, by not dealing with this, by just letting it go on, whether they're ignoring it or applauding it, they aren't recognizing the seriousness of sin. They're dealing flippantly with it. I tell this story all the time. But when we were working on atomic power here in the U.S., you know, with the Manhattan Project and these few things, when we were getting used to the reality of radioactive energy, there was a famous scientist who uh, was, while talking about critical mass, which is what happens when you get enough of plutonium, uranium, whatever it is, enough of the unit together to cause a reaction, and as he's talking about it, he's got enough in front of him to do it, and he's just pushing one towards the other, illustrating this, and he slips And there's a reaction right there. The whole room goes green. He grabs the pieces, pulls them apart, um, has terrible radiation burns, and multiple people in the room die of radiation poisoning in the next few years. Okay? Pushing uranium with a pencil is a bad idea, specifically because you're not recognizing the seriousness of what's going on. And they're playing with sin, thinking it's not a big deal. And we'll see in the next few weeks, Paul gives a bunch of reasons why sin in the church must be dealt with. And it has nothing to do with the fact that we're sinless, okay? Because this reality of of deception that plays out in this man's life where he's got a choice before him and he goes, this is the right path for me. That plays out in your life the same way with the same wrong choice every day. That's why Martin Luther began the Reformation and kind of brought the church back to the truth of the gospel with this statement, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. 
The greatest way to interfere in progress in the Christian life is to stop repenting, to think, I've arrived. Right? Paul tells us not to do that in Philippians 3. John says, if you say that you have no sin, you lie, and the truth is not in you. That's not the issue here, though. The issue is that this man has chosen to continue in sin and sustain and maintain not just his standing in the church, but his identity with Christ. John has more to say about that in 1 John chapter 1. You can check it out another time. But the issue here is one of tremendous deception. And it's deceiving himself. It's deceiving the church. And it's a terribly confusing message for the world. All of those things are threatened by this continuing on with nothing being done. So what does he say they should do? He says, first, ought you not rather to mourn, and then let him who has done this be removed from, uh, from among you, okay? Now, one other piece I want to lay in here. Paul here is not coming up with some new formula of how to organize a church. He's following in the footsteps of Jesus, just like we see all the time. Paul is not creating a new religion or, or using Jesus as the icon of, of something he wants to build. When he's laying this out, he's repeating the teaching of Jesus. See, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this. He says, if a person sins against you, go to them privately. Bring the sin to their attention. And if they ask for forgiveness, your relationship is restored. If they don't, if they're resistant, if they continue in, if they will not see that reparation, then bring another witness, somebody else who knows what's going on, and once again, privately address him. If that doesn't work, then take it before the church, and if still they will not repent, then treat them like an outsider. Okay? What we're reading here is just the last stage of that reality. Okay? This person is choosing and continuously living in this reality, and all they've missed is the final point of discipline. I don't think there's any reason to believe that people haven't gone to this guy and gone, are you crazy? What is going on here? But now it's just normal. Now it's just something. It's like, well, we tried to tell him and that's all we can do, right? So that's what's going on here. We need to recognize in that. And then I want you to recognize a few more things. The first thing we see about this act of discipline is that it's local church oriented. Okay? That's why Paul, even though he says, I've already judged the guy, and I'm with you in spirit when you do this, but you need to do this. Do you see here how Paul doesn't excommunicate them ex-cathedra from the chair? As the apostle, he doesn't just, you know, uh, uh, banish them from Christendom. No, the way church discipline is supposed to play out is particular in the fact that it's oriented around a local church. Now, it's worth remembering that the church in Corinth and the church here in Capitol Hill or in Seattle is a, is a different thing, right? There was one Christian church in Corinth, even though it was scattered through all of these home groups and gatherings, and there was leadership. It was a large body, but there was only one church in Corinth. And a lot of times, when we think about church discipline today, we think, well, but it's so different today because there's so many different churches. And if we, you know, give somebody the boot, they'll just go down the street and they'll go into that church. What I want you to recognize, though, here, the idea of the localness is because the thing that hurts, if you will, in church discipline isn't about a sermon and a Sunday. It's about a community. It's about a family. And so this implies something that shows that the problem is not with church discipline, but with the value of our church communities. Because if we were the type of community that was so loving and so involved in someone's life that it would hurt if we weren't there, then we can understand what Paul is laying out here. Notice that that's the punishment. It's just what we sometimes call excommunication, right? There's no defaming or shaming publicly. There's no stock set out in the front yard. There's no um, you know, capital or corporal punishment of any form. It's just, if you continue in this, you can't be with us. That's the line. That's the second thing I want you to notice, is that the punishment is communal or antisocial in reverse of that in nature. Then the last thing I want you to recognize here is that it is a action that's carried out by the whole church. So we'll see here, we'll read it in just a second. It's not just the it's it's not only not the apostle Paul who's carrying out this sentence, but it doesn't say you leaders of the church in Corinth kick this guy out. Listen, 
Listen to what he says here in verse 3. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan. As an assembly, all gathered together, in the name of Jesus Christ. And notice it says, in the name of and in the power of. Why does he say it twice? Because they're gathering in the name of Jesus and they're carrying out this sentence in the power of Jesus, okay? Every Sunday we gather in the name of Jesus. That's, that's what we do. That's why we're here. That's what's brought us here today. But also here, even though it's just a local church carrying out a local expression of church discipline, he roots it in the authority of Jesus himself. Not his own authority, but in Jesus' authority. And once again, this is not something that he's thought up. It's exactly what Jesus told us. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, this is the passage where where Peter rightly says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, you're right, Peter, and on that foundation I will build my church. And he says, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and then he says this, whatever you loose on heaven or on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Traditionally, throughout the history of the church, we've referred to those things as the keys, okay? But we do it recognizing that they're Jesus's keys. Read Revelation chapter 1. Recognizing the fact that all we're doing is making visible and tangible reality. Like I said, this man's issue is not just his sin. It's that in this have it both ways, cake and eat it too, there's a total lie. That he cannot be in the light and live in darkness. That he cannot be part of the community and be divided by his sin. That he cannot choose sin and Jesus at the same time. Okay? Now, I want to be really clear here. The cross of Christ, this idea that your salvation was completely provided for in the actions of another. That you don't stand before God in righteousness because of what you've done, but because of what he's done, means that there's no action too big to be forgiven. No way to sin your, out, sin your way out of salvation. But I also, at the same time, want you to recognize tonight that if you're choosing to continue on and live in sin, not struggle with sin, which is a different thing, but saying, I don't have to deal with this because it's not a big deal. Saying, I can be both a Christian and have this on the side. Saying, it doesn't matter what the Bible says here because I do all the other things right. Now, James says, you break the law in one place, you're a lawbreaker. You cannot continue in that place and have any security in your salvation. You will never find that promise in Scripture that says, hey, I know you've chosen to continuously live in evil, but it's okay, you're forgiven, don't worry about it. I'm not talking here about the security of believers, but what J. Vernon McGee called the security of make-believers. Okay? Sin is inherently self-deceiving. And if you're in a place where your behavior is no longer bringing conviction, then you have to wonder if you're alive or dead because dead bodies don't feel convicted about anything. And you have to wonder if the Spirit is present because one of the things the Bible says the Spirit will do is convict us of sin. You have to wonder if you understand truly both the reality and the seriousness of sin and the cost that Jesus prayed to deliver you from it. And so this is an action, it's a reality check. It's helping them to see what actually is. It's making physical what's already spiritual. They're already separate in the church. Your sin doesn't have to be found out to destroy relationship. It doesn't have to be known. But here, it's known, and it's not being dealt with, and it's creating this this weird paranormal universe that plays by different rules. And so he says, as a group, when you gather together, remove him. And look at the language he uses it. This is probably the most intense sentence in the entire passage, right? What does he say? He he doesn't just say, kick him out. He says that earlier in verse 2. But here he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Okay, now, I don't want to remove the intensity of that all, but I do want to bring some clarification because there's this tendency in modern, uh, modern times to think of the devil as hell's torturer, right? As if he's the one meeting out all the punishment. And so that makes it sound here like the devil's just waiting, pitchfork in hand, and as soon as somebody steps out line, he's now his territory. 
there's some misconceptions we've got to deal with here first, okay? Uh, that idea of Satan as, as torturing souls in hell is not biblical. That's from Milton, okay? Uh, that's from, um, from Paradise Lost, and it's from uh, the Divine Comedy, or what we call Dante's Inferno. Those ideas greatly informed the way we think about the devil, but actually, hell, according to Jesus, was invented for the devil. It's his punishment, and he's the only one that was you know, in the plans to go there, which is what makes it such a terrible place. And so here, what does it mean, surrender this man to Satan? Let's start with that, okay? What he's recognizing here is that there's a safety in the church that doesn't exist outside the church, okay? Now, there's lots of ways that, um, that commentators have thought about this that I find helpful, even though none of them are perfectly satisfying. There's clearly a relationship between this idea and what we read in the book of Job, for example. But you couldn't have a much or any more different of a situation than this man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and Job who's done nothing wrong. But the real contrast here is just from the fact that the church, and I'm not talking about this building as some sort of spiritual sanctuary, I'm talking about the church as a community is, is God's property. It's under his protection. And the reality is, by being a part of this community, you're saved from all sorts of consequences. And I'm not necessarily talking about disease or demon possession. I'm talking about the fact that you have people pointing out sins in your life that you're unaware of. Right? And so the consequences don't always pour out. I'm talking about the fact that here you have this constant reminder that Jesus died in your place, and so it deals with your guilt. I'm talking about the fact that you have a love here that you don't deserve and don't earn and yet constantly receive. You know what? Maybe this is helpful. In another place, the Bible refers to Satan like a roaring lion, you know, who's just kind of looking around for anyone he can devour. So in that sense, the church is like a community of zebras. And the safe place to be is with the group, okay? Not off on your own. Really what he's talking about here is just as much giving this man over to his own desires and his own sins as it is giving him over to Satan. I don't think any of us had these parents, but we all know of that hypothetical parent who catches their kids smoking and makes them smoke the whole pack, right? This is in that idea as well. It's, and that's, how do I know that? Because what does he say? For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now here's another place we make, we make a mistake. It sounds like, so we're just going to let him have the hell kicked out of him, but at least he'll still go to heaven. That, that doesn't make any sense in the context. In fact, if you pay attention to the grammar here, there's only one purpose. The so that comes in the second phrase, right? You hand him over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved. The other one's not a purpose, it's just a consequence. In doing so, it will destroy his flesh. And don't think body. Think flesh. Like the New Testament talks about over and over again as being your carnal and sinful self, the part of you removed from the Holy Spirit. The recognition he's making here um, is kind of like when you recognize that you can't ha- help an addict till they hit bottom. Sometimes you just have to let people pursue the path. Have you ever thought about this in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son? That the father lets the son go? Here's this son who says this incredibly inflaming and insulting thing, which is effectively, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance? I don't want anything to do with you except for your money. I want to go and make my own destiny. Isn't it surprising that the father gives it to him? But where do we find him at the, you know, at the midpoint of the story? We find him in rags and tatters, out of money, sold into slavery, sitting with pigs in the mud, and he goes, oh yeah, my dad was a pretty good guy. You see, when we keep people in fellowship who are choosing these paths, they're not recognizing what's missing from their life. Because it's just pay, playing out like a pageant in front of them, and they've got They've got the good life. They've got the church. They've got communion. They've got the sermon. You know, they've got the presence of the Spirit of God and all of these things. And it's not, it's not real. It's not there. It's not present. So the idea here is let them experience the full separation of their sin. Let them experience the full consequences of their sin. When we choose sin, we become calloused. 
And so this is almost helping them to feel the pain. We already feel it. We're mourning. Now, in the last few verses, he roots it in the why, and this is where it gets really surprising. This will be the difference between some sort of religious club that you just guard the door as a bodyguard for and the heart of what's really going on here. Notice what he says. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he begins with an illustration and a very common one in the Bible. What he says is, don't you understand how this is going to play out? Now, leaven, we all know what yeast is. Leaven here is a little bit different. Okay, leaven is a bread that's already leavened. It's, it's your dough, and it's already, because of yeast gone to work, grown. Leaven, or yeast, is what makes bread tasty. It's the difference between a saltine and a sandwich, okay? Um, but he, the recognition here is based on the fact that in these days, you couldn't just buy yeast at the store, right? You couldn't turn yeast into a powder and then reactivate it with water like we do today. So what you do is you take an already piece of leavened dough, you'd hold on to it, and you'd add it to the new dough. It would leaven the whole thing, and then you'd take a piece of that, set it aside. If any of you, when you were kids, did a friendship bread, right, where you send on a piece to the next, that's what we're talking about here, okay? And basically he says, do you not understand that by tolerating and keeping this sin within the church, you're playing with fire? He says, don't you understand that you're trying to say, we're an unleavened loaf without sin, but touching us, connected to us, part of us is just this leavened portion, but that's fine. I mean, it's a loss, and we've kind of written it off on the map of what's going on in our church, but it's not a big deal. It doesn't work that way. Leaven is inherently spreading. That's what it does. And the Bible consistently uses that as a picture of sin because that's what sin does. And the reality that you can justify someone else's sin and not find yourself justifying the sin in your own life is ridiculous. And the reality that you can tolerate uh, and applaud a sin in the church and then not see that spread is, is ridiculous. That's what sin does. But what he does next is he starts with this metaphor and then he deepens it way down. Pretty soon he's not just talking about general bread, but a very specific bread. Look at what he says next. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven for, here's the why, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Okay, so he draws our attention specifically to the festival of Passover. But I want you to notice here how he identifies the Christian life. Before we get into the idea of leaven or unleavened, he sees it as a feast. This is important, and not fasting. See, this is one of the ways we go wrong with sin. We think the Christian life is one of aestheticism. And so we sign up, and we're identified by what we don't do. And so we don't do this, or this, or this, or this. And if you read it that way, then all that's going on in this passage is is you've got a, a guy who's doing what you shouldn't be doing, and it's over. But he doesn't say the Christian life is supposed to be aesthetic. It's supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be, that's part of it. But what does he say? He says, celebrate the feast. See, the recognition here, the recognition, the way Paul sees the Christian life is one that is full of feasting, of satisfaction, of joy, of celebration, not of dour expressions and avoiding and, and you know, some sort of emaciated holiness. It's a feast. You have to start there. But it is, nonetheless, an unleavened feast, which means the feast of Christianity is not like a Roman orgy, okay? This, this is a different type of celebration than a frat party. It's unleavened, right? Later he'll say, without malice or wickedness, which are the most general terms we have in the New Testament for evil. The idea here is that it's a feast, but it's a whole new kind of feast, It's a different feast. It's an unleavened feast. You see, at Passover, you ate three things. You ate the Passover lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread, which once again is is matzah, it's crackers, okay? What's the star of that feast? (laughs) What's the one you're actually excited about? It's, It's the lamb. And what he points out here is not just that the Passover lamb, let me remind you of the story, okay? So, Israel's in Egypt. They're enslaved to the Egyptians. God's promising to keep them out. Pharaoh is resistant, and so God has been demonstrating his power to Pharaoh in the form of plagues. 
Pharaoh constantly is hardening his heart and saying, no way, you cannot go. You're staying right here. And so it finally comes to the last plague, and this is what God says. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come through Egypt, and I'm going to take the life of every firstborn child. He says, so you, Israel, you need to take a lamb, an unblemished one, you need to kill it, and you need to put its blood on its doorpost. And when the, when the angel of death comes over your house, it will pass over it. That's where we get the word when it sees the blood. Now, that is fascinating. Okay? There are other places in the plagues where there's a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And so hail falls on the cows of the Egyptians, and Israel's field is totally fine. But here, the only distinction between Israel and Egypt, the only one, is one is protected by the blood. It's not because they were born in the right family. It's not because they're in the right place at the right time. It's not because their house has no leaven in it. That comes second. It's because of the blood. But it's not just here that he's reminding us that what keeps death out of our lives is the sacrifice of Jesus, but what gives abundance to our life is the feasting on Jesus. Okay? Because this Passover lamb, like I said, wasn't just killed and discarded, but slain, blood on the mantle, and then roasted and the whole family partook of it this was a seven-day feast for israel and they start with the lamb but with us he's not talking about a seven-day feast he's talking about the reality of the christian life and he says it's a feast and the joy and the celebration and the satisfaction is found in the lamb okay now the reason why this is important is because effectively this man has sold out the feast for a crust of bread and is trying to say, this is what's missing from my life. This is what brought me satisfaction. This is what's necessary for my joy. But for us, everything we need for life and godliness is available in Jesus. He is our wisdom, our righteousness, our satisfaction, and our joy, Paul says. And so, what he's saying here is, look, you don't need the leaven because you've got the lamb. Now, there's another piece here that you have to see. Like I said, it was not the unleavened because if you go back and read in Exodus, you'll find that they were supposed to get all the leaven out of their house, not just out of the bread for dinner, but every cupboard was supposed to be investigated. It all had to go out, okay? It was an unleavened household for seven days, not just an unleavened dinner. But... I want you to recognize how Paul sees this, going back to verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. He doesn't say, stop being leavened. He says, God's made you unleavened. God's already dealt with this. He's given you, once again, everything you need for life and godliness. What he's reminding us of here is a big deal, that Christianity is not just forgiveness, but empowerment for obedience. We have what we need to have victory over our sin. One of the ways that we could put this is it's not just that we don't want to sin or can't sin as Christians, but we don't have to. We have something better. And basically what he says here, and this is the entire ethic of the New Testament, is be what you've become in Christ. This is who you are. You are unleavened, so get rid of the leaven. But notice the order there. It's not get the, rid of the leaven so that God will love you or so that God will accept you or so that God can use you. It's God has done something miraculous for you in Jesus Christ. Something that the Bible says was from death to life, from darkness to light, from leavened to unleavened, which by the way, we scientifically can't do, but God can. And so he says, become what you are. And then I also want you to notice here that this isn't just this isn't just for the rare, exotic sinners, okay? Not just for the unheard of one. He says that this is the way we all live, and he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, and then look at verse 8. Let us not therefore cel- or let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Okay. You may not be able to take to yourself the title of incestuous, but malicious and evil, like I said, these are the most general terms the Bible has. It's how Paul constantly identifies who we were before Christ. It all has to go. In fact, notice what happens next. 
Paul tells us next week two really important things, and we'll focus on them next week, but I want you to see them both first. First off, what we're talking about tonight has nothing to do with things outside those doors. I'm not talking about your lives. I'm talking about their lives, okay? This is not about how we treat non-Christians, people outside our church. Notice what he says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Listen, for a non-Christian, any given sin is not the issue. Jesus is the issue. He says, I'm not talking about how you treat outsiders. He says, I'm not saying you shouldn't eat with prostitutes, right? Jesus did that. But if they identify as a brother, if they put themselves in the church, and then what I want you to notice is it's not just sexual sin and exotic. Look at the list, he says, uh, once again, halfway through verse 11. He's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. He gets really broad here. The issue is not one of extremeness of sin, but continuing in sin, identifying in sin, living the lifestyle of a swindler, right? This is what he's talking about. And so he says, all the malice, all the evil, all the wickedness has to go. I'll give you one reason you're probably not thinking about. It's spoiling your appetite. When you settle for the crust of bread, you forget how great the feast God has laid for you is. If you go, man, I just, God's not satisfying to me the way he was. I I just don't seem to find any joy in my life. I just feel so bummed out. There can be a lot of factors in that. Suffering is real. The Bible says Christians are going to endure it just like everyone else, and in some cases, more of it, just because we're Christians. That's true. But one of the major causes of a loss of satisfaction in Christ is that we've settled for something less. This is what Jeremiah says. God speaking to Jeremiah says, My people Israel have committed two sins. First, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And then, what have they done? They've made for themselves pots, broken pots that can't even hold any water. And so here they are, sitting in the mud, trying to keep the water in their pots, but they're cracked, so it's all flowing out when they've got an artesian well sitting right next to them. That's what sin in the life of a Christian is like. And so he says, it's got to go, and then notice what he says, but instead, with the unleavened bread at the end of verse 8, of sincerity and truth. Now, why those two two traits? Sincerity and truth. Because we're talking about reality. The unleavened life is the good life. The life that feasts on Christ is the good life. We have everything we need for God, and when we live that life and don't settle for these lesser things and don't fill up on junk food, if you will, then we're living in sincerity and truth. We're recognizing that God is who he proclaims to be. We're living out uh, what Jesus has made us available to in the Christian life. We're making clear the goodness of the gospel, that God has saved me from my sins, and that is good news. Not some sort of bad news, but at least I'm not going to hell, right? No, the sin themselves bring death, and we've been set free from that. It's no coincidence that right before Isaiah lays out the great passage of the suffering servant where he predicts line by line the reality of what Jesus would bear on our behalf of our sins. It's no surprise that he deals with just this issue. Listen to this in Isaiah 52 and this is where we'll finish for tonight. So Isaiah 53 is the chapter of the suffering servant. That's where Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray, each one going his way, but the Lord laid our iniquity upon him. But this is what he says in 52 verse 3. what I want.
I'm sorry. Let me double check the reference. One of the glorious things about technology is all my study notes are right here. 55, I'm sorry, a few chapters early. So just after. Look at what he says in verse 1 of 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. God says what you're looking for, what you can't seem to find satisfaction in in this pattern of sin that started as freedom and is now clearly slavery, you know, this, this frat party that sends you home with not just a hangover, but with emptiness. He says, I'm offering you rich food. I'm offering you that that does satisfy. And he says here, come and buy it without price. Not because what God offers is cheap, but because it's already paid for. It's comped in Jesus. And so the Christian life is a feast. And it's not just, it's not just a feast where... Uh, you know, leaven is inappropriate, but also where it's unnecessary. And so this is the reality of church discipline. And let me just add one, letter, one last aspect. It'll come up again, but what you see both in Jesus talking in Matthew 18 and what you see in this passage tonight, whether you picked up it or not, is the goal of church discipline is not just to keep us safe or to keep holy. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is restoration. We're doing this so that he would come back into the church without his sin, so that he would be restored, so that his relationship with his father would be fixed, right? So that forgiveness would be readily made available and applied. The goal of church discipline is not eternal or punishment. And there have been times in church history where church discipline could come with a life sentence. That's nonsense, according to the Bible. Because the goal was always for them to feel the pain of their sin so their sin could be dealt with. I told you earlier that sin is serious, and that's true. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to deal with. Okay? That's the glory of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, your sin issues, the ones you're struggling with, the ones that you're hiding, uh, the ones that maybe you've been walking in for a long time, they can be fully and completely removed in the blood of Christ. And so the idea, once again, of church discipline is to make that a favorable option because you see it for what it really is, your only hope. Let's pray. Father, this issue can go sideways in so many ways. It's just as easy to do church discipline out of uh, indifference and not follow the path of Jesus, and instead of going to somebody who we know is dealing with sin, just publicly proclaiming it and severing ties. We know that it can be an expression of arrogance and a division that you're, you're the backslidden, you're the fallen, you're the distance, and I'm the good and faithful. And then we just end up looking like the elder brother in Jesus' story who's just as removed from the father's party as the younger brother. This can be something that we've been on the receiving end of. And even when it's done well, we're so blinded by our sin and we were so not closely connected with those folks that we don't even feel the pain. And to this day, it's something that was done to us and not for us. But when we look at the cross, when we recognize that this is a God-given plan to deal with sin, that you know the horror and the seriousness of sin, and you didn't just say, hey, avoid it, and if you get stuck in it, that's it, I'm sorry. You, you just should have listened to me the first time, but you have a, a, such a patient hand, a patient hand that comes and admonishes privately, that draws witnesses and builds a case, that as a church says, we love you so much that we have to send you out because you have to feel what we feel. You have to mourn like we mourn. We don't want you to lose out on the good things God has for you. 
I pray, Lord, that you develop that heart in us. And I ask, also ask that for us as a church, we would be a church that people would feel the loss of leaving. That the love and the joy and the fellowship would be so true and so good that weighed against sin, sin would be seen for what it is. A poor choice. Unsatisfying. I pray, Lord, that the lack of our loving interaction with people would be so tangibly a metaphor for your loving interaction with people that they would run to us and run right past us back into your arms. And I ask that we would be serious with sin in our own life, Lord. That when we're struggling, we would confess to others and seek prayer and support and help and when we've got big things that seem impossible to deal with, like we're too far gone or there's no going back or I've just been at this for too long that we would remember, no. Jesus, his sacrifice is sufficient. The lamb has already been slain. You've already removed the leaven and all we need to do is lay it aside. Thank you, Lord, for this sacrifice that sufficiently gave us everything we need, not only to deal with sin, but to find what we were looking for that satisfies that deep ache in our heart that sin only scratches and infuriates without satisfying. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a group of people who feast on the good feast of Passover, whose life is identified with the celebration and joy and righteousness and peace that comes with the kingdom of God. That all we needed is all you gave when Jesus gave his all and freely offered it to us. I thank you, Lord, for all of these truths and we pray that you would continue